0: Thank you, Maddie, And thank you all for being with us today at River Oaks. We are really, really glad to have you here with us. Glad to have you here in person. Just a reminder, we do ask that you wear a face mask throughout the the entire service this morning. And thank you for joining us today. We're going to continue our series that we've begun on the glory of God, what it is and what it means for us but before we do, I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray for each of us, and I'd like to pray a prayer that is found in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. This is a prayer that was prayed by the Apostle Paul for the Christians at Ephesus, and if you're not accustomed to praying the prayers that are in the Bible, I, I highly recommend it. We know that all scripture is inspired by God, so these prayers in the Bible have already been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we know, uh, we can know that we're praying according to God's will when we pray prayers like this one that are found in scripture. Let me first read it to you. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read verses 15 through 19. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, Now, I'd like to pray that prayer for those of us here today. Would you join me? Father, we come today in the name of Jesus Christ, and I pray for your people here, your saints. I thank you so much for them, Lord. And I pray that you would give to each one of us today the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. I ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened this morning, that we would know the hope to which you've called us, that we would know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, in us who believe, and that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might. Father, give us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. Now we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're talking about glory. The glory of God is one of the most difficult biblical terms to define. Yet it's spoken of from beginning to end in the Bible. After the message last week, David Holcomb sent me an email. Those of you who know Pastor David Holcomb know that he likes data. And he, he sent me an email and said, Do you know the word glory is used 328 times in the Bible? And 46 times the word glorious is used. And 37 times the word glorified is used. And there's some form of the word glory used in the Bible once every 2.7 chapters. So he likes stuff like that. So, And I appreciated that. And it reminds us that the glory of God is a very significant theme in Scripture, but it's a difficult one to understand because when we use the glory, we talk about just giving somebody credit or honor, giving someone glory. But the biblical <coughs> meaning is much more full and rich than that. What does it mean? Well, the Hebrew word glory that you'll see on the screen is the word kabod, and it carries the idea of being weighty, heavy, of substance. This doesn't really tell us exactly what the glory of God is. We just know it it refers to, uh, in some way, to the, the very substance of the being of God himself. Now, as we look at a few other passages of Scripture, we can see references to the glory of God that give us a little additional insight. For example, in the book of Exodus, we can see that the glory of God is a visible manifestation of His goodness. Moses was someone who had seen and experienced the glory of God. He had been on a mountaintop with God when the glory of God came down like fire and smoke and had given Moses the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And yet later in Exodus, Moses, who was just drawn back to this experience of the glory of God, says, please show me your glory. How does God answer Moses' request? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses requests, show me your glory. God replies, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I think that we can understand from this passage that the glory of God is in some way a visible depiction, a visible manifestation of the goodness of God, the presence of God, the weightiness of God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God's glory has been manifest as fire and as clouds. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, God said, you'll know I'm present because you'll see a pillar of fire at night, a cloud by day. In 2 Chronicles 7, the verses you see on the screen, Solomon had just prayed a prayer to dedicate God's temple. And as soon as he finished... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. This was their response to encountering God's glory. They fell on their faces. Elsewhere, we see God's glory expressed by beauty and by brightness. I love this verse in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet Ezekiel writes, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Could you imagine seeing a rainbow that was completely unobscured by anything else? How beautiful it would be. He writes, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord." Wow, he saw it. What was his response? I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Beauty, brightness, visible manifestation of his goodness, the weightiness of God. So we might say that glory could be defined as the beauty, the brightness, the purity, the perfection of God's presence. God's presence on display, visible manifestation. Scripture talks a lot about the glory of God, Old and New Testament. The Bible has a lot to say about future glory for those who are believers. The Apostle Peter says God has has destined us for eternal glory. One day, even our bodies will be glorified And scripture tells us that this creation, this created world in which we live is testifying about the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. As the pictures you see on the screen depict the beauty of this world, the beauty of the created world, the Psalms would tell us, in some way, point us to the existence in the gloriousness of our Creator. The Psalm that says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof goes on to say, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. The most beautiful things that you and I ever see on this earth. Think of the beauty of a, a great sunset or sunrise over the mountains, over the oceans, the vastness of the ocean, the beauty of the clouds. Sometimes you can see it looking out the window of an airplane. The incredible beauty of this earth is just a little sketch of the greater beauty to come. Some of you have probably read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. And if not, maybe you've you've seen the movie, seen the movies. In uh, one of his, I think it's the last in his Narnia series called The Last Battle. C.S. Lewis seems to be writing about a believer that's just entered into eternity. When he writes these words, I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Lewis goes on to write of the day when human beings will, quote, put on its glory, or rather that day, rather the greater glory of which nature, the beauty of this world, is only a first sketch. God has given us beautiful things in this world, beautiful things in the heavens, and they testify to the greatness of God, the glory of God. Well, let's get then to our passage today, the one that Maddie read a moment ago, the passage in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. If you're looking at it in your Bible or you've read it before, you probably see a little a section heading called the Transfiguration or Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where his appearance is changed and his face looks like the shining sun. A couple of things first before we dig into this. Whenever you find an account like this in one of the Gospels, whether it's something that happened in Jesus' life like this or something he taught, maybe one of his parables, it's always helpful in understanding it to see if there is a parallel account in one of the other Gospels. For example, in this case, the transfiguration of Jesus, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. And when you read those other accounts, you can sometimes get a little additional information. They're never contradictory, but they can enhance our understanding of of what's happening there, because God inspired the other Gospel writers to give us a little bit of Additional insight. So we'll look at Matthew, but also uh, a bit at what Luke wrote. The other thing to say about it is this what happens here happens on the top of a high mountain. Have you ever heard somebody say, Yeah, I went to that retreat or went to that service? It was a mountaintop experience. Well, there's good reason to say that because in the Bible, a lot of great encounters with God happen on the top of mountains. In the Old Testament, It was up on Mount Sinai that Moses encountered the glory of God, and God gave him his law. In the Old Testament, it was on Mount Carmel when the great prophet Elijah saw the fire of God come down and burn up the sacrifices, showing that he was a true God. Jesus' great sermon on the mount took place on a mountain. Jesus would often go out to the mountains to pray. And in this case, he had also gone out to a mountain to pray, and he had taken with him Peter and James and John, and they had an incredible mountaintop experience. So what's the transfiguration of Jesus all about? Why is it in the Bible? What is it teaching us? In fact, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, first of all, in his transfiguration, The deity of Jesus was confirmed. Now, whenever you study a passage, it's helpful to view it in its larger context. The two verses leading into our verses today read this way. Jesus himself is speaking. And he says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he'll repay each person according to what he's done. Therefore, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, look at those words for a moment. Throughout these two verses, Jesus is effectively saying that He is God, He is the Son of God, He is one with God, He is deity. The Son of Man is going to come with whose angels? His angels. He's going to come in the glory of His Father because the Son with the Father shares eternal glory. He'll repay every person for what He's done because Jesus, the Son of God, is the great judge of all. And He's going to be coming in His kingdom, which we know to be the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the fullness of that kingdom. But He says something that it's hard to figure out. He says there's some of you standing here right now, some of you disciples who are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, we know all of those disciples have died. And it would appear that Jesus is talking here about his second coming that hasn't happened yet. Let's now read Matthew 17, 1 and 2, and maybe we can understand what Jesus meant when he said there's some standing here who won't taste death until they see the man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his foes shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Here, God gave Peter, James, and John, some of those standing here to whom he'd spoken, a little foretaste of the coming of the Son of God in his glory. Jesus was glorified. Peter would later write of this, that in this account, God the Father, the majestic glory, spoke from heaven and gave God the Son honor and glory. Can you imagine what it would have been like Peter, James, and John go up there with him? They're dozing off. He's praying. All of a sudden, they open their eyes, and his face is shining like the sun itself. His clothes are glowing, dazzling in their brightness. If they didn't know it before, and if they didn't get it when he said that he would be coming with his angels in his kingdom, surely they knew it now that Jesus was God the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, more than a mere man. Jesus' deity is shown in the transfiguration. But there's much more that's shown in this account. Furthermore, we see in this account that the unity of God's plan of salvation was demonstrated, was confirmed, because as they see Jesus' glowing face, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. We get a little more insight In the account in the Gospel of Luke, which says, as he was praying, because he'd gone up this high mountain to pray, taking Peter, James, and John with him, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, and two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is is highly significant, I think. When I say it demonstrates the unity of God's plan, what I mean is there's only one plan of salvation in the Bible. There's not an Old Testament way of salvation and a New Testament way of salvation. People in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Moses, Elijah, Noah, Esther, they were saved by grace through faith, faith in the redemption that would come. Just as you and I today are saved by grace through faith in the redemption that has come in Jesus' completed work. And the fact that Moses and Elijah are here talking to Jesus attests to this unity of God's plan of salvation. And I think the fact that they're here answers other questions. Moses was known as the great giver of the law of God. Israelites, Jews connected him with the law. He was the great lawgiver. Elijah was considered the greatest of the prophets because of his many mighty miracles. Together, they're representative of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament way of approach to God. And here they are, these Old Testament representatives, talking with Jesus about what he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I think their appearance with Him in glory answers some important questions for us. Maybe questions you've considered or you've been asked by a friend. They're questions I've been asked. I've been asked, were people in the Old Testament saved? How were they saved? The answer is yes. They were saved by grace through faith, just as Moses and Elijah are with Him now. A question that I've been asked more often is, what happens to a Christian at death. Because some have taught that at death, a Christian goes into a state of soul sleep and remains there until the day when Jesus comes. It won't seem like that long because we'll have been asleep and we'll just wake up when he comes. And um, that's the way some people understand teaching in the New Testament. But I completely disagree. I think the Bible teaches us clearly that a believer death goes into the immediate presence of God. Moses and Elijah were in glory with Jesus. As Jesus would elsewhere say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. As the Apostle Paul would say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as he would say elsewhere, I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's never made sense to me that God would, because of his love for us and his desire for our fellowship, would redeem us through the sacrifice of Jesus and bring us to himself. And Jesus would say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The one who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. Would say all these things. Jesus would say, nobody will snatch you out of the Father's hand. He's great or he'll keep you. Jesus would say all this, and then at death, the Holy Spirit would leave us, and we wouldn't see him for a few thousand years. I don't think that's the teaching of the Scripture. I think the teaching of Scripture is that a believer, whether it's Abraham in the Old Testament, or one of your loved ones, believing loved ones that you've lost in the New Testament, walks through the doorway of death into the immediate, glorious presence of God. Now, Moses and Elijah, as they're talking to Jesus, are talking about what he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. To me, this points to the fact that the cross of Jesus, he'd be crucified there in Jerusalem, was absolutely central to the plan of God, his plan of salvation. They spoke of his departure there because he would die, he would be raised, then he would ascend back into heaven there. So all this is to say the appearance of Moses and Elijah talking about what Jesus would accomplish points to the joining of Old and New Testament, the unity of God's plan, Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But there's more in this. In the transfiguration, the authority of Jesus' words is confirmed. I don't know why Peter said this, But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I don't know why he said that. Maybe in some way he thought that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were equals. But what God the Father says next should have have affirmed that Jesus was, is unique. God the Son, the Son of God. When God says... This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. A strong statement on the authority of Jesus' words. And then finally, I think the transfiguration shows us something of the great grace of Jesus as well. When the disciples heard this, the voice speaking from heaven, through a cloud, which I'm sure was the glory of God. They did what everybody else did. We read about in the Old Testament. They fell on their faces and they were terrified and they were terrified by this. And Jesus touched them and said, rise and have no fear. These few verses show us the glory of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, God the Son. He's the fulfiller of the, the law and the prophets <clears throat> excuse me, of the Old Testament, represented by Moses and Elijah. We see the authority of his words, and I think we see his grace. Because those who know him need not be terrified by the awesome glory of God. And the reason for that is Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elijah, just like all of us, we've all sinned. We've violated God's law. We've coveted. We've lusted. We failed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We failed to love our neighbors, ourselves. We've fallen short. But what Jesus accomplished at Jerusalem was to die on the cross and bear the judgment, the penalty of our law breaking. That we could be forgiven, but he did more. The New Testament uses the word justified to refer to what he accomplished. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. To be justified means we're not only forgiven. We're actually credited with the righteousness of God, as if Jesus puts a cloak on us of his righteousness. And because of that, we need not be terrified of the glory of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is preparing us for eternal glory. The Apostle Paul says that those whom God has justified, made righteous, he's also glorified. Hasn't happened yet, but one day will for us. We'll be glorified in his presence with him. So, what can we take away from this passage in Matthew 17? What should our response be to the glory of Jesus? Well, number one, our response should be to hear and obey His words. One of the clearest statements of this section of Scripture has to do with Jesus' words. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Jesus said the same thing. He said, everybody who hears my words and builds their their lives upon them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Elsewhere, Jesus said, the, the, "The one who's a member of my family, those who are my mother, brother, sisters, are those who hear my words and do them." Jesus recognized his words were the authoritative, inspired words of God. And by the way, we don't. We don't obey Him because we're trying to get to God. We obey Jesus because we recognize that he's already brought us to God. And if you've never embraced the salvation of Jesus that he secured on the cross for you, that's the first step. Not to do anything for God, but to recognize what he's already done for you. And having received his salvation, gratitude is the motivation for doing what he says. We love him because he first loved us and we want to obey him. Secondly, our response to the, the glory of God. While Jesus was transformed outwardly, we can be transformed inwardly as we hear and obey his words. I don't mean we're going to shine like the, the sun. Jesus' transformation, we call it transfiguration. The same, same Greek word is translated transfigure or transform. Um, it was an outward transformation. His transfiguration, because inwardly, he needed no transformation. He was perfect inwardly. Nothing changed about his inward being. We just, there on the mountain, they got a glimpse of his glory. Now, as for us... We need ongoing transformation. We're forgiven, made righteous by Jesus if we've embraced his salvation, yes. But we still stumble in many ways, as the Apostle James says. And the Apostle Paul tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And to the Corinthians, he writes that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same likeness from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer can enable us by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight, to behold the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus, what He's done for us. And as we do, He enables us to be increasingly transformed into the same likeness until that day when you and I, unless Jesus returns first, it's going to happen to every single one of us when you and I walk through that doorway of death into His presence. And that glory, the Apostle Paul says, all the suffering in this life cannot compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The Apostle Peter who was with Jesus that day on the mountain in 1 Peter chapter 5, writes, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself strengthen, confirm, and establish you. If you're a believer, God's called you to his eternal glory. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, I pray you'd encourage your people today. Pray, Father, for a a greater awareness of the awesomeness of what you have done and the awesomeness of what lies ahead for those who are in Christ. And I pray that our grasping that Would help us deal with the challenges of this life in a way that is more faith filled and faithful to you. Lord, encourage your people today. And if you're here and you are not sure whether you're a Christian, maybe today is the day you need to consider what Jesus did for you on the cross in his death and resurrection and say, Lord, I need you as my Savior and my Lord. Amen.